0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast, where we chat everything and anything related to the world of music, and occasionally focus on topics a little bit unrelated. My name is Scott Kiwi, I am a drummer turned comedy singer-songwriter, and apparently now a podcaster. You're going to hear me chat to many different people, but more often than not, it will be fellow musicians having conversations about their careers and lives within arguably the greatest art form in the world and you get this for free each and every week on scottcowey.com on stitcher radio and now on itunes so please rate review subscribe tell a friend let them know what's going on over here but for now enjoy the show It's this week on the podcast, one of my favourite drummers of all time, Mr. Chad Wackerman, perhaps most famous for being in Frank Zappa's band. This guy is unbelievable on the drum kit. He's got some amazing stories, as you can imagine. Uh, We're going to get right to it. It's going to be a good one. Okay, I am back on the Talk Music podcast with Mr. Chad Wackerman. How are you today, Chad? Good, Scott. How are you doing? I'm all right, yeah, you've looks as if you've got a great home studio set up. Um, what kind of projects are you working on at the moment, Chad?
1: Uh, well, let's see, uh, I've always got some, you know, I'm always kind of tweaking my studio with my own music and, and stuff, but um, uh, December I got back from a band from Utopia tour, which was, it's a Zappa alumni band. Mm-hmm. Um, we toured in Europe, and then the next, I'm going to do a quick um, kind of a quick, about four gigs in Indonesia with an Indonesian pianist and in Jimmy Haslett, um, a great bass player. And then uh, spring I've got, mid-March starts a tour with Jennifer Batten and Stu Hamm. It's a, um, a new project. So Jennifer called me, and I haven't worked with her before, so I'm looking forward to that.
0: Oh, She's an amazing guitar player, isn't she?
1: She is, yeah. She's pretty outrageous, and Stu's a great bass player,
0: so it'll, it'll be quite fun. Oh, that, that's going to be some band. Just promise me you'll think about coming over to Scotland with that group, because that sounds fantastic, Chad.
1: That would be fun. I would love to. It's not booked for this this um, leg of it, but I hope they they see if it goes well. Um, we're doing Italy, Germany, a um, bit of Austria.
0: Sounds great. Well, f- fingers crossed you guys might be in the UK at some stage. Now, you mentioned the uh, Zappa straight away there, which is, is interesting because, as you can imagine, a lot of the, the questions in the interview are, are Zappa-related. Um, okay. Fascinating subject. Um, can you tell us about, first of all, how generally how the gig came about? Um,
1: 1981, ages ago, um, a bass player friend of mine told me that Frank was holding open auditions. And and so it was just like a what they call in Hollywood a, a cattle call. It was just... He was just hearing, you know, he, he would do a kind of a quick interview over the phone with you first to see if he thought you would should come up to the house. He had an amazing home studio, which I, I'm sure Dweezil still uses to this day. Um, yeah, so it just, from Kevin Brandon, this bass player, great bass player friend of mine, he he had auditioned one day, then called me the next day and said, look, here's Frank's number. You should call him up and see if you can get it on it. On a, on a, and audition, So I kind of got my nerve up to do that. And at first I wasn't even going to try. I didn't think there was any point because I thought, well, you must, the drummer's auditioning must know a lot of his music and there's so much of it. And I didn't really have that much uh, experience even listening to his, a lot of his songs. So, but a friend of mine talked me into calling him and thought, well, yeah, they've got nothing to lose. So I, I gave him a call and um, he answered the phone, which was to my surprise and um, he, I said, well, uh, you know, Mr. Zappa, I'm a drummer. I live in Los Angeles, and um would love to get an audition. And he said, well, do you read music? And I said, well, yeah, I, I read music. And um, he said, well, are you a good reader, or are you a phenomenal reader? You know, Frank always just cut, he was a very direct guy, cut to the chase. So um, I just kind of laughed and said, well, look, I've had some experience in symphonies and big band, and I do a fair amount of session and jazz and rock stuff, so... Love to give it a in percussion ensemble things like that I had done um, so I'd love to give, a, give it a shot. He said, "Okay, we'll come up to the house." And so I did. Um, I don't want to make this too long of a story, but so I, I went up to the house that that day, and um, it was kind of multiple things going on. His daughter was very very young; uh, she was a little kid having a birthday party at the time, and there were also all these construction workers around. He was building a vault for his tape and film collection, you know, of his own, his own projects. Um, so somebody just, you know, buzzed in the gate and, and said, here for the drum audition. He said, oh yeah, walk up the stairs and there's a studio door up there. So I knocked on that and, um, this guy, I, it was opened and, and I see this guy he had kind of long blue hair and kind of real rock and roll clothes, like the, you know, rock and roll bracelets and, and leopard skin shirt, leather pants, that kind of thing. And, I said, I'm, my name's Chan, I'm here for the drum audition, and it was Steve Vai. Wow. Steve, Steve, Steve was a guitar player in the band at the time, so and he wasn't famous. You know, He was just the kind of utilitarian guitar player. Amazing one, but still. Um, he said, oh, my name's Steve, and here, I'll introduce you to Frank. He's in the control room, so I met him. He said, well, just hang on. I've got a couple other drummers, and I'm running a little bit late. got a couple of the drummers before you to hear, so we did the, so I was able to hear a couple quick auditions, and then um, it was my turn and saw the music and played what I could of it, and he thought, you know, thought I had some potential. And basically my audition lasted three days. So he said after the first day, you know, it, he had a, kind of the nucleus of the band set. He didn't have a bass player yet, but um was so auditioning bass and drummers. And Tommy Mars was there, Ed Mann was there, a great percussionist, you know, Um and Steve, they were kind of the nucleus of it, and then later Ray Ray White joined. Um, so yeah, we just we first had to play the classical music that he had on the on the stand. And then after that, he wanted to play all sorts of odd time signatures. Uh, and he was basically, <laughs> which I saw him do with many people, he he'd just see how far you could go until you got kind of tripped up a little bit. So he would do crazy things like, okay, well. Play thirteen, and he'd tell me the subdivisions. Okay, now make it in ska style, you know, or then make it. Uh, what he would just mix up all these styles and time signatures, and then towards the end of the day, he'd put on his guitar, and we just improvised. So I thought, well, that that's that's probably a, a you know that fun is just really fun, and it just I was kind of trying, instantly transported to when I was ten years old. I, I saw Jimi Hendrix. Mitch Mitchell, Billy Cox, and Jimi Hendrix. And I remember that it was the first rock concert that I saw as a kid, you know, but I just remember these guys are, they're really stretching. They would improvise for a long time and all these people just loving it. And I thought, wow, this is so powerful. And it was kind of loose and but kind of jazzy because Mitch played, you know, mm-hmm. the, like you could tell his Elvin Jones influence in his playing and really long solos. And and when Frank started playing it, it were, just reminded me of that, that not, you know, not that Frank played like Jimi Hendrix, but it was in that kind of same, you know, it was really loud of Marshall Stack, and, and it, he played for a long time. It was really fluid, what he was playing. It wasn't, uh, you know, so he was playing all sorts of polyrhythms, and it was great. It was just great fun. So after the first day, he said, you know, look, um, I want you to come back the next two days, because I'm going to cut the auditions after after that, and make a decision. I told the band that I... They had been auditioning for three weeks at that point, and um, they were kind of fed up with it. So, I said, well, well, great. And he said, "I'll, you know, I'll pay you the same amount I'm paying Steve and Tommy and and Ed just to come back for the next two days. And if I hear somebody else I think is, you know, promising and has potential to the gig, to the gig, I want to hear you play right after that person." So, mm. so um, most most of the drummers didn't get past the reading part. Mm. You know, he that was the first thing you had to. Show him that you you could do so. If you couldn't pass that, he didn't. You know, it would just be thank you very much. So luckily, I had enough experience reading. I couldn't play perfectly, but I could play just enough of it, I guess. Where he thought, well, this guy could probably work on it and and figure it out. So, so yeah, I did. I was twenty one years old, and Steve was twenty one, and the bass player, he picked Scott Tunis, was also twenty one. So, rhythm Sector was pretty pretty young. You know, Tommy and Ed had were the seasoned veterans you know they'd been in the band over over 10 years at that point so which is great because they kind of showed us the ropes too it was fun
0: that's an amazing gig to have at the best of times let alone when you're only 21 years old it's, it's, it's phenomenal really when you think about it
1: no it was very surreal too i mean especially when i first got the gig it was i couldn't really believe it but then you were in this um, you were just kind of in frank's world for a while you had to memorize all these songs and you know he had such a huge library of music and he Wanted the band to be able to play at that point at kind of 80 songs so he could mix up the set every night. He didn't want to be bored by playing the same show, so he mixed it up all the time. So it was getting the gig, then it was keeping the gig, you know. Um,
0: did you have so, much, um, did you get much scope to come up with drum parts for tracks at all? Was it all Frank? Was it a little bit of both? What went on there, do you think?
1: It's both. It was definitely both. I mean, sometimes he would come up, he would have a definite idea for a a groove or a beat or, um, and you know, a lot of the pieces, the way he wrote, he would hand us a kind of middle interlude section. It'd be like a rock and roll tune. And then the middle part would be classical. So that's when you're literally playing like you are in the symphony. And he'd write for all the, for each drum, each cymbal, you know. It was all be scored out, but that would typically be the middle part of the tune. Then you go back to the rock and roll section
0: after that. So it was, it was very, um, almost very militaristic. Certainly the approach to rehearsals and, and everything. I it, think.
1: Well, it was it was classical composition, so that part you needed to play right. But at the same time, he wanted to, to be played with with a certain feel, and not militaristic. You know, it yeah. couldn't all, all of a sudden sound stiff. You know, it still had to groove, even even if you're playing polyrhythms or odd time stuff, and even if it was orchestrated around the kip, the Often, he, he really loved drums. He um, he was a drummer in in high school, you know. Mm. So he could play. I heard, heard him play a couple sound checks. He he was good. He had a nice nice loose feel and um, a few licks that I I know that he the way he kind of thought after a while and what he liked to hear. So as you do with any leader composer, but um. So yeah, often the classical section he would write write the drum part often in unison with the melody. So, you know, if it's very Zappa esque.
0: Very interesting indeed. Now, what I, I love reading about all the, the the Zappa, everything about Frank Zappa, really, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of I think misconceptions and myths. But one of the um, one of the ones that I heard that I'd, I'd love to ask you about. Is it true that in one occasion that you requested an entire show to be played in a reggae feel? Is there any truth to that at all?
1: Yeah, it's true. Uh, There was one show, almost um, almost every tune. Um, See, we would learn these songs in the style that they were originally in, but then he used to have visual cues that he would just show to us which would change the style of a song. So if you're playing a, a song that you know is a heavy metal tune, you know he would give a visual cue maybe like twist his hair on one side would, would mean go into reggae if he did it on both sides it would mean go into ska if he had these so visual cues so you had to watch him all the time because stylistically the the song would change depending on what cue he gave you and there was one particular show where he kept on just giving us the cue for reggae you know you hear the introduction of the tune then reggae again you know so that only happened once. But it made it fun, you know, and it was never
0: boring. Oh, it never boring musically. It's certainly, it certainly sounds like somebody would definitely keep you on your toes without, without question. Now, yeah. um, talk to us about I mean, you've played with so many different people over the years. I'm interested to know about your time with uh, Andy Summers.
1: Oh, sure. Um, yeah, that was fun at the time. Um, my friend Doug Lunn, great bass player, uh, got me involved in that. Uh, and I played in a, diff, a few different lineups with them. We did two records, which I'm pretty proud of. One was called Charming Snakes, the first one, and that was m- mostly a trio record with Doug and myself. Um, and he had various guests on it. Mark Isham and Herbie Hancock played on that. I think he had Sting over to bass on one one little reggae tune. So yeah, that, that was fun at the time. Um, we did a bit of touring uh, with a kind of a different band too. He had a it was. Uh, we were doing the um, kind of the George Wien jazz festivals in Europe, and um, that that was like an all star band. It was Mitch Foreman on keyboards, Bill Evans on on sax who played with Miles, um, Daryl Jones on bass is phenomenal. You know, yeah. So that, that was fun at the time. Um, lasted a two or three years. Then he that band ended up uh, the band with Doug, and was expanded a little bit with David Goldblatt on key, keyboards, Steve. Uh, well, anyway, um, he ended up getting a gig on a TV show. It was an American comedian named Dennis Miller, and it was like a Johnny Carson type uh, talk mm-hmm. show. You mm-hmm. know, so he was the leader of the house band, and um, that was fun to do because it was in town and we're playing different music all the time. You'd, you know, play the play ons and playoffs, and get to play with all these different backup, all these different singers, and, and so forth. So that was fun. But and he got kind of bored with it after about three weeks, and he wanted to quit. So, but the rest of the band, we really actually liked doing it, you know, it was a good bang gig and playing with some really interesting, fun people. And, uh, so we stayed on and we got James Harris to play guitar from Madonna's band and, and uh, Steve Tavlione played saxes. So, and, um, and we'd have Luis Conte, you know, come in and out with us sometimes. And so, yeah, that, that, that was, that turned into like another gig, so these things kind of morph
0: sometimes. Sounds great. Tell us about your time with, playing with James Taylor and touring with him. What was that like?
1: That was amazing. Um, That was one of my, one of the funnest things ever. Uh, Good, one of my best friends is Jimmy Johnson. Jimmy and I played with Alan Holdsworth for many, many years. In fact, I got, originally got Jimmy on Alan's gig. We did, uh, the first record we did was Metal Fatigue for Alan. Um, Anyway, uh, Jimmy had played with James Taylor for many, 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 many years, and he's his musical director now. He's kind of leader of the, the band. Um, and Steve Gadd's been doing that gig for, for ages, you know. And Steve, two thousand eleven, Steve had uh, he had uh, he was just really busy. He couldn't fit in James for that year because I think he was doing a world tour with Eric Clapton, and he was producing A.D. Perkel, and he had all this plus his own band gigs and so he wasn't available so I had played a couple pops gigs with with James um, a couple years previous and that and so I knew him and that was fun and he knew that I would I I did a lot of homework before I did those pops gigs and try to try to fit in and make it feel like something (laughs) recognizable although it's you know kind of impossible to do if you're trying to fill in for Steve Gadd. But no, it, it was great. It was just a blast. His band is ridiculous. You know, it's Jimmy Johnson, Mike Landell, Larry Goldings, you know, four amazing singers. It's Walt Fowler from Zappa's band on Trump and Lou, Lou Marini. It's it was just a blast. And the, the fun thing was he, he kept on changing up the show. We first tour we did was with his son, Ben Taylor. So we played half of Ben's songs and then we played a couple shows in Carnegie Hall where James was kind of producing these shows and they were one was a charity fundraiser and he had various guests like Sting and um, Robert Cray, Bette Midler, Tony Bennett, you know, so we're backing up all these people. So I counted up it was a five month period that I did and we played over ninety songs in that five months, you know. So it was just a blast and James is amazing. He's an amazing person, couldn't, you know, just couldn't be nicer and he's a great guitarist. And I really love his music. It was really fun.
0: You mentioned Steve Gadd there. Obviously, you seem to be a, a fan of, of his. What other drummers? Are, um, what other drummers do you like in, in general?
1: It's a huge list. You know, Jack Teagarden, Tony Williams, obviously. Are, you know, it's some, some my favorite. Elvin Jones, Terry Bozio, is my good friend. Yeah, uh, Vinnie Cagliuda, um, You know. There's just Peter Erskine, let's go, Steve Jordan,
0: that's just a short list. Oh, that's great. I, I, I Jim
1: Keltner too, actually. Jim Keltner's a huge influence.
0: Yeah, he's an amazing player. I was so delighted mm-hmm. earlier, earlier when you mentioned Mitch Mitchell, who's a friend of mine, who's such a phenomenal player too. Absolutely, yeah. Right, so recently you've been doing different projects, you've been working. What's, what was the experience like going from drumming with different people to then doing the, the solo albums? What was that transition like?
1: Working with different artists and, and, and the solo records?
0: No, working with different artists and then going on to doing your own solo albums. What was that transition like?
1: Um, I don't think about it too much. It just doesn't, you know. Um, well, when you're doing a solo record, you're, you're in charge, you know, so you can do actually whatever you want to do. <laughs> Which makes it fun. And I write music. So on my solo records, I'm the I'm composer, except for the improvs that, that we do. Um, and I really love doing it, you know, so it's, it's, um, yeah, but I don't know. I try to think of each gig because I've been able to, been so lucky to play with, the, so many diverse artists, you know, from Frank to, yeah, to James Taylor and, um, Alan Holdsworth, of course, you know, um, no, it's, a. a you know, when you do a solo project, it's really up to you. You're, you, and you should do what you want to do. You know, so um, I write the music and I give the make out the, I write out the charts and do little demos for the band, and, and then we get together and rehearse and basically do it. and And I also like to improv, improvise a lot with certain musicians where we have a nice chemistry. So um, my last record has Alan Holdsworth and Jimmy Johnson and and Jim Cox, They're all completely phenomenal people and, and, and players and they all bring you know they all have a, such a, a great signature voice and they bring that to the record and I want to show that off so that you can easily do that with, with improvisation or you can write the improvisation parts into your into music which I do too and then when you're working you know you have different modes when you're working for a singer everything changes it's not like being in a fusion band where you're kind of up front it's your job, really, to make the singer really comfortable, and make the music really comfortable, and figure out what's important for this song, and not to step on certain lyrics. You know, um, it, it's it's definitely a different mode. You know, you're not the you're not the person in in the forefront, but it's got to be really solid, and you have to make everybody really comfortable so you just figure out what's what does the music need and, and it helps to kind of throw your ego away you know I mean people are not people don't go to a James Taylor concert to hear me play drums they're there to hear him and what he does on his own is really complete you know you don't need like whatever you add ends up being important you know because you're playing with a lot of space um and, you, you know, you have so much respect for the song and for his voice and for his guitar playing. You want to make sure you're framing things where that's still featured mm-hmm. so you're not stepping on it. You, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And it, yeah. and it just takes listening. I mean, Steve is is brilliant at it. Carlos Vega was absolutely brilliant at it, too, the drummer before. before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's really just kind of getting your set into the the mood of the song and sometimes you know often if you hear the lyrics actually read the words you know that'll it'll change what you play Mm -hmm. you know not not all drummers do that but um you know each each tune kind of tells a story or has a mood and and you can enhance that and and by by what you do or what you don't do
0: okay and lastly is that any of all the people you've you've... You've played with so many people over the years. Is it any that you haven't had a chance to work with yet that you would love to?
1: Oh, man, I'm, I'm sure there's there's a lot, but um, I don't know. I've just been so lucky to, to lock into the, the people that I have. And sometimes, you know, you play with people and it's great, and sometimes you play with people and it's just, like, a magical, you know. And, like, working with Alan has always been that way and Jimmy Johnson and... Um, yeah, I've just been you know, super lucky. Um, and we've got a local band here, too, with Mike Miller, Man. phenomenal guitar player. We used to play with Chick Corea. Yeah, I'm playing with Boz Skaggs now and, and Doug Lund. We've I've got a trio we play locally, The Baked Potato, which is a fusion club. Yep. Um, and that's great. You know, I've, I've just been really, really lucky. So I'm just trying to continue and put these records out every, every few years and, and so
0: forth. Excellent. We'll look forward to hearing the the records in the future and, of course, uh, the new projects you've got coming up. And fingers crossed, touch wood, you'll make it over to the UK. Chad, thanks very much for chatting with me today. Thank you so much, Scott. Unbelievable stories here from Chad Wackerman and some good revelations too about some of his new projects. I think we got an exclusive there. He's going to be playing the kit with Jennifer Batten and Stu Hamm. Can you believe that? I cannot wait to hear that band. Scottkewey.com for all your podcast and vodcast needs. We've got a new vodcast series with the likes of Nathan East, Definity Rocks and coming up soon, the legendary Carol Kay as well as all of our previous podcasts including interviews with the likes of Stuart Copeland, Julian Lennon, Larry Graham, the list goes on and we're coming up very soon to our 50th episode, can you believe it? And we've got some great surprises for you right around the corner. Keep checking out scottcowie.com, and we will see you guys very soon.